Good morning and welcome again to InTown Church. We're so glad you're in worship with us. If you're new to InTown or visiting for the first time, I'd love to meet you at the back after the worship service, or please do feel free to stick around and grab some coffee. We've been going through a study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're now in chapter 20, and this is our Gospel reading. You can follow along in your bulletin with me as I read. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent them still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to spend time interacting with Jesus' words. Jesus, would you come and speak to us directly? Would you meet us where we are, wherever we are on our journey of faith or exploration or belief? Some of us here have been a part of a church for a long time, and we're eager to bend our lives to your will and to what you want to do. Others of us are perplexed, confused. We don't know up or down, and we need you to be the stable stone on which we can stand. Others of us are here and surprised we're here. Maybe we haven't been in church for a a long, long time or, or never, and we're looking for something that we can believe in, and maybe this is it. Jesus, would you show up to each of us, wherever we are, whatever our questions are, as you challenge us, as you teach us, as you instruct us, let us each bend our will to you and take a step in your direction. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's lots of biblical imagery here, lots of illusion. There's lots of pieces here that have to do with various parts of biblical history. And this is a very historically particular text, a very culturally specific text happening at a very critical juncture in Israel's history. And much of what Jesus is doing has to do with passing judgment on the teachers of the law, passing judgment on those who had become Israel's leadership, and then giving that leadership to the others here in this passage. There's a lot that's very specific to a very narrow window of time. So how do we then take hold of it? How do we respond to it? Well, It's very relevant today when we realize that what Jesus is talking about, what this parable is essentially about, 
is ownership. That the tenants are walking around like they own the place. That the scribes and Pharisees are walking around like they own the place, and Jesus brings them an eviction notice. Now, we're going to look at the way that the tenants operate in this parable because the tenants are who Luke wants you and I to identify with and to wrestle with. The tenants relate to three key figures in this parable. They relate to the owner, the servants, and then the son. So it's the tenants versus the owner, the tenants versus the son, and the tenants versus the servants. So first of all, tenants versus the owner. There's a story that was told of a man in a Dearborn, Michigan restaurant where they make cars and where all of the the major three are located. And he happens to bump into, in this restaurant, to Lee Iacocca, who at that point was the famous chairman of Chrysler, who had turned around the whole company. And he says, Mr. Iacocca, it's so great to meet you. What an honor. My name is Jack, and I'm having a business dinner over at that corner table with some colleagues. And it would really impress my friends if you would come over in a few minutes and say, hi, Jack, and just kind of act like you know me. (laughs) So Iacocca, good-naturedly, agreed and waited a few minutes later, and he went over to the table and said, hey, Jack, how are you? And Jack then looked up and said, not now, Lee, we're busy. (laughs) Don't we long to look more powerful than we are? Don't we long to be more impressive than we are? At the very least, take what we have and use it as a perch to look down our noses at other people while hoping that they'll return the favor and look up to us. All the images that we typically associate with pride and power have to do with height, how high you are. The proud are said to look down their noses at other people. They're on their high horse They have a lofty opinion of themselves. They have a soaring ego. And the collision here between the tenants and the owner, the tenants and God, is a conflict of power. It's a conflict of authority. It's a conflict of who's in charge. Who is the real owner? It's a collision of rights and privileges and pride. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 4, we didn't read, but the Pharisees and the scribes challenged Jesus. By whose authority, Jesus, do you do these things? By whose authority? Isn't that the question at the very center of a lofty opinion of oneself, of a soaring uh, soaring ego, of one that doesn't want to cede control? Isn't that the thought, the challenge at the center of, of one who presumes that they're the center of life, that they're the center of the world, that they're the most important thing about life. By whose authority, Jesus, do you stake out your claim on my life? The Bible says over and over that a great deal of human behavior can be understood in terms of spiritual repression. Repression meaning basically this, that when we come up against those things that challenge our most basic assumptions about life, that when we come up against those things that challenge our psychological assumptions, that challenge our fundamental commitments, how we want the world to be, that we repress them, that we repress those things, and that so much of human behavior can be explained by this, that anger, inhumanity, sexual confusion, social conflicts are results 
of spiritual repression and repression of God himself. Now sin, if you understand that that's at the heart of what the Bible is saying about human behavior, that it's an issue of spiritual repression, of choosing to go against God, to oppose his rightful claims on our lives, then sin, properly defined, is a repression of God's rule and authority. In other words, sin is a tenant acting, acting like an owner. In your bulletin, I quoted William James, the pioneering psychologist in the 1900s, and he says, the instinct of ownership is fundamental in man's nature. And then Christopher Lash, who's an economist, the social expectations that stimulate a child's appetite for new toys appeal to the desire for ownership and appropriation. The appeal of toys comes to lie not in their use, but as their status, but their status as possessions. When this fundamental desire, or should we say right, is challenged, we defend it at all costs. We repress it, repress it. Even if we believe that the challenge comes from God himself, we tend to repress it because we do not want to cede control. There's actually an active repression of his lordship that leads to violence and anger and fear and rage. And in this parable, that's exactly what happens because the tenants kill the son. Exactly what the actual scribes and Pharisees seek to do to Jesus. It's a living parable of the very thing that Jesus is claiming to be true, and it comes to fruition. Tenants who see themselves as owners will fight the true owner tooth and nail. Do you see, that's the fundamental challenge here. That's the fundamental question of this passage is who is the real owner? Who is the real tenant? And when tenants see themselves as owners, there is a great conflict that happens. And that's the spiritual conflict that's been happening throughout history over and over. And that's what the Bible is driving at. That's what this parable is driving at. Tenants versus owners. Tenants who see themselves as the owner and God, through his son, seeking to establish legitimate authority and rule over that which he's made. First of all, tenants versus owners. And then we see tenants versus the servants. The parable is directly related, as I said, to the way the people at the center of the religious life of Israel had managed the vineyard, that they had failed to cultivate the spiritual health of Israel. But of course, each of us, right, is given responsibility over certain resources, that we have to manage our material and biological and emotional and even spiritual lives, that we have resources that we have that have been given to us or that we've gained through ingenuity and so forth, that we have to manage, that we have a responsibility. And each of us is given a certain amount of power and a certain number of resources by which we build and construct our lives. Now, people come to cities, people come to places like Portland to be, a, be part of something that's larger than themselves and also to seek a name for themselves, to make a name, to establish a reputation and an identity. And they come to sort of creative class cities like Portland because of the opportunities for success are generally greater here in a concentrated way than outside of cities. So you move here. 
And many of you have this story. You move here without a job because you want to be in Portland. You want to be part of the energy, part of the industry here. You want to enjoy the good things that Portland has to offer. And you come here maybe without a job because you want to be here so badly. Maybe you sleep on a couch for a while. Maybe you share a house with five or six people so that you can pay your rent. But then there's some who break out of the pack, who actually become successful who actually do make a name for themselves. And the way that they deal with success, the way that they deal with their new prosperity tells you whether they see themselves as a tenant or an owner. If they put distance between themselves as though, though, of those that they've left behind, they're acting like owners rather than tenants. Because what do we want, want to believe about our success, about our prosperity? It's that it was our ingenuity. It was our creativity. It was our intelligence. Not educational breaks, not breaks from the community, not that we grew up in a certain affluent situation that made it easier for us to excel, but it's us. We're tenants acting like an owner. How do they answer that question? By whose authority? The answer is me, by my authority, by my ingenuity, by my industriousness, I became successful. And so therefore, we distance ourselves from those who are no longer like us, who don't have the same lifestyle opportunities. And of course, it's not just non-religious people that do this. At the center of the parable is very religious people who on a test will say, of course, God is the owner and I'm the tenant, I'm the manager, but they're acting like they're the owners and not the tenant. The last group that is admitted, is admitted to any social club or exclusive club is generally the loudest voice in making sure that they keep the next group out. <laughs> I, was, I went to college in a, a school that had a, a pretty vibrant Greek life, and so I rushed a fraternity like all the other guys did on my hall. And when you're a pledge, you grit your teeth and bear it, because in most fraternities, there's a good bit of hazing that goes on, and the, the older brothers take advantage of that and have a great time inflicting the same carnage and pain on the new guys as was inflicted on them. And you always want to do more than what was done to you, and so rituals have a way of escalating. Once you make it inside of the members-only society, you savor that new status, you want to make it harder and harder for others to be admitted, and you want to, want to only let in the most distinguished, most accomplished, coolest, best-looking, smartest people, because what does that do? It elevates your own status. If you just let anyone in, then it diminishes and waters down what you had achieved by your hard work and by gritting your teeth through the hazing process. The very purpose of having a social club is to have a door behind you that you can close on other people. The Bible is consistent in talking about the fact that you and I are tenants, that we have been put here to manage God's creation, that you're tenants, not owners, but that the nature of the human heart is that we don't want to be tenants. We want to be owners, and there's that conflict again and again, of people in the Bible that want to be owners, not tenants, and they put their arm and their hand up against God because we'd rather live by the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency 
So when the messengers come, when the servants come, when God sends servants into your life to help you understand that no, you're a tenant, not an owner, they get beat up. God's servants come to tell us that our true condition is dependent and contingent. But what do we do? We diminish, we dismiss, we push away, maybe we even get violent with those servants and messengers. So a parent, a parent is given to you by God to help you understand these things, to show you and tell you about what life is truly like. And they help you see that you are a contingent, dependent person, not completely self-sufficient. But you see, parents aren't perfect, and so we tend to say, oh, but that's just them. And we dismiss the core message that we get from them, that which touches us very close and challenges our, our most fundamental presuppositions we d- dismiss. Maybe it's a church. Maybe you've had an experience with a church where you've been pinned to the wall, that you've seen something that you kind of sense is real and valid, but you don't like it. It pins you against the wall and it holds you there. But see, churches aren't perfect either. And so it's easy to say, oh, but that's that church. I'm going to go find a different church who maybe won't challenge me in that same way. And so we go from church to church, avoiding the real issue that we should be there to begin with. Life itself is a messenger, is a servant, because it will never let you believe fully that you're the owner. And when we bump up against that reality that I'm a tenant, not an owner, what do we do? We try harder. We keep trying. We protect our resources. We say, I'll do better next time. Life is a messenger, is a servant that creates anxiety. It creates worry. It creates stress for owners. I was, had, a, had a dream just last night because we happened to have the privilege of owning our house, or at least the bank owns it. We're paying down the bank to own our house. But I ha- woke up dreaming of what? Of something going wrong with our house. I'm holding up these big buckets because water is pouring down through the roof of my house, and I'm going from one to the next, and the buckets won't hold the water. Renters aren't stressed out about their home. They don't worry about needing a new roof. They don't worry about the fact that the plumbing might need to be replaced. If something breaks and you're renting your home, what do you do? You call the owner. It's the owner's burden and stress. And the reason that many of us are stressed out, the, many, the reason that many of us get so worked up about personal slights is that we are a tenant acting like we are an owner. And God is saying, friend, son, child, daughter, you're a tenant. Your intelligence isn't yours. Your sexuality isn't yours. Your talents aren't yours. They're given to you as a gift to use under my authority. Now, that's the hard part. It's hard to give up those things that we see as core to our being, as core to our identity, and say, yes, it's not mine. It belongs to God, and I'm going to use it to his glory. That's the hard part. The liberating part is that you don't have to protect them anymore. You don't have to defend yourself against personal slights. You don't have to worry about the leaky roof and the busted window because it's not your problem. It's the owner's problem. It's God's problem. You're the tenant, not the owner. Seems easy, but though we know we're tenants, deep down we hate the idea 
We don't like the idea of a God who won't let us be in control. And there's this deep motivational collision that goes on, and it's why so many of the things we want, so many of our desires seem just outside our reach. This is why we don't listen to the servants. And we see, we understand that this is true of all of us because what do we do when the ultimate, ultimate servant comes, the ultimate messenger comes? We beat him up and we kill him. And we need to look at tenants finally versus the son. We've zeroed in now on sort of the primary accusation that the Bible has against humanity. It's not that we sin, that we misbehave, that we do bad things and have misdeeds in our life. The primary accusation is not that we sin, but that we are sinners, that we want to be gods over our own life and possession. So much so that we'll harm ourselves and we'll harm others in the pursuit of controlling those things. And at the very center of the Bible is the indictment of that and the evidence that the one time that the real God shows up in the flesh, we beat and kill him. And Jesus says, they hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, what does it mean to truly believe? What does true Christianity look like? Well, what we need to see and what you need to understand is that becoming a Christian, being a Christian, doesn't mean simply stopping one behavior and behaving in a different way. It doesn't mean exchanging one set of values for the other, although it may include that. It instead means stepping down off of the throne of your life, or in this passage, giving the deed of the field back to the true owner and saying, it is yours. Sin is not just the violation of the rules, but it is opposition to the true authority and ownership of God himself. That's the nature of sin. And there's just as many ways to do that with moralism and legalism as there is skepticism and atheism. Flannery O'Connor, who I've quoted before, said of one of her characters in her novel Wise Blood that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. The best way to avoid Jesus is avoid sin, lowercase sin. Avoid misbehaving so you don't have to truly deal with God. You don't have to truly deal with Jesus if you're good enough. You don't need to admit that you're fundamentally opposed to Jesus and his rule and reign in your life. You don't have to admit that you need his grace every second of the day, just like everyone else. If you can behave well enough, if you can keep to your P's and Q's, morally speaking, religiously speaking, then you don't have to go to Jesus. You can avoid him by your good works, by moralism, by legalism. It can be a way to keep control of your life just as anything else can be. And Jesus walks in like he owns the place, and he says, I'm the true owner, and you're merely a tenant. This is the real way that you know you're coming close to the real Jesus, that you know that you're coming close to biblical Christianity when you begin to see this, when you begin to recognize this in your own life, that my fundamental problem, my fundamental spiritual problem is a collision with God over his authority and his rightful rule in my life, that that's the problem that the Bible is dealing with. 
Now, isn't it striking in conclusion that, the parab- that in this parable the tenants never get what's coming to them? They never get their comeuppance. Jesus asked, what would happen to tenants if they behave this way? Well, the owner's going to come in and bust some heads. He's going to set things right. He's going to reestablish his authority and kick the tenants out. But it doesn't quite happen like that, does it? Instead, Jesus invokes the Psalm 118 image of the rejected stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed, crushed. Now, it sounds primarily like a threat of judgment, and it is. There's some judgment that is being made there. But what is God's ultimate response to the world's abusive treatment of God and his servants and even his very own son? It's not a full frontal assault, a revenge, but it's an immense sacrifice of God himself, of the son coming to die for the very ones who beat and kill him. God doesn't just send one messenger, but he sends many. He continues to send messengers. He sends servants, and then he sends his own son. He keeps pursuing. He keeps pursuing. And long about the time that you expect Jesus to finally say, okay, now my dad's going to come in here and rough you guys up. I've had it with you. I'm done. Instead, he says, in essence, I will lie down and die for you as the rejected stone. That's his response to human sin. The stone will break and crush, and we think, oh no, Jesus is about to get me. But look at the cross. Who is broken and crushed? It's Jesus, the stone. The stone that was rejected was rejected by you and I. That we want to kick him out of our lives, and he keeps coming and says, no, let me in. In fact, I want to liberate you from yourself. I want to save you. I want to grant you redemption. And how will I do that? It's not by asking you to work harder. It's not by exchanging a set of behaviors so that now your behaviors reflect me. No, I'm going to come and I'm going to be crushed and broken for you. Jesus, friends, is the stone that's crushed for you. He's the owner of your life who also dies for you, the owner that dies for the tenant. He's the creator who grants peace to his wayward creation. Would you take hold of him now with that promise, with that invitation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful owner. We know that there is judgment in this passage. There is judgment for all of us as we seek to distance ourselves from you, as we seek to keep control of our lives and keep you at bay. But Father, there's also a gracious offer of hope, a gracious offer of reconciliation. And Lord, I pray that each of us this morning would take hold of that as we come to confess our faith, as we come to the table. Let that be what happens, that we cede control, that we give you the deed of our life and therefore receive peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.